0: Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Today's episode is a special one. Jackson Bubala is a senior associate at a Chicago-based early-stage VC fund called Motivate Ventures. He recently joined the Motivate team after spending the first three years of his career at Manifold Ventures. Jackson sourced and led due diligence for a number of investment opportunities at Manifold. He worked extremely close with our portfolio companies in order to help them grow and improve performance. Additionally, Jackson also worked with the advisory business of Manifold. He consulted enterprise clients, and worked hand-in-hand with their innovation and technology teams to help build internal businesses and technological products. Jackson is extremely embedded in the Chicago VC ecosystem. This past fall, I attended a Chicago venture capital trek hosted by the Booth School of Business. It was a week of programming with VCs coming to speak to Booth students, and it felt like nearly every single VC knew Jackson by reputation or personally. Jackson received his undergrad degree from Dartmouth, where he played pitcher for the baseball team. He writes a weekly newsletter, Stealing Signs, that I cannot recommend highly enough. Finally, stick around to the end of this episode. You do not want to miss the litany of Chicago eateries that Jackson fires off. With all that said, here's my conversation with Jackson Bubala. Jackson, thank you so much for joining me. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while, and I'm really happy you could join us. Matt, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to chat today. I wish listeners could see you have probably one of the most impressive baseball cap collections (laughs) in the VC ecosystem in Chicago. And I wish we could have that as a feature of this episode. I think we just kick off with your background. Could you take us back to the beginning? What was your path to venture capital? I know there's no one standard orthodox path, but I think you had a pretty interesting one. Sure.
1: It's certainly not the traditional path, but these days people are getting into venture via so many different routes that I don't even know if there is one, you know, quote, traditional path anymore. My path was, I was fortunate enough to intern at what's now called Manifold Group during my senior year in college interned for six weeks during our winter break. I spent the summers playing baseball as I played in college, so didn't do internships over the summer, but did a six-week one over winter break. Loved it. We can get into sort of the different service lines of Manifold, but got experience across early stage venture capital, enterprise sort of consulting and and not management consulting, more like technology building, startup incubation, et cetera. And then post-graduation, was fortunate enough to get an offer to work there full-time. So spent three years at Manifold Group doing early stage venture capital, enterprise consulting, et cetera. I didn't seek out venture capital intentionally, but pretty soon after I joined Manifold, I realized, holy cow, Like, there's so much going on. It's so exciting. I know so little. There's so much to learn, and it's an excellent outlet for just endless curiosity. So I could explore new things every day, whether it was financial technology, enterprise software, consumer technology, direct-to-consumer brands. I had known a little bit about like entrepreneurship growing up. My dad and my parents had a restaurant. My dad was the owner and head chef of a restaurant called Time here in Chicago for the those who know it's Pico Sonio is is now in that space. So I had known what like sort of the traditional American entrepreneurship was, but certainly not entrepreneur from entrepreneurship from sort of like a technology entrepreneur angle.
0: So did you study finance in college? Did you want to be an investor at any point? Like when you looked at your career, did you wanna play in the MLB? Baseball certainly took up a lot of my focus
1: in, in college. We played all day, every day. That was really front of mind for me for four years. As far as major, you know, economics is, is probably the number one major at, at Dartmouth. I majored in government because I was more interested in sort of writing, public speaking, group work, sort of chewing on an idea. And it sort of, it was a better outlet for, for curiosity because you could explore so many different aspects of it, whether it was policy writing, government formation, et cetera. And it ended up being a lot of papers, a lot of getting up in front of class and speaking, figuring out how to convey messages to different audiences. That was awesome. But I think in college, I definitely wanted to play in in the big leagues. I I was fortunate enough to play with a couple of awesome players that are now in the minor leagues. One is a triple A starter for the Cubs now. A couple other are in double and triple A across the the major league baseball. That was definitely what I wanted to do. I realized towards the end of my career that though I had some opportunity. I probably wasn't going to cut it. And after the six-week internship at Manifold, the exposure there opened my eyes to what was possible after school, especially in sort of the venture capital startup technology world. And I decided pretty soon after graduation, that was what I wanted to do. It still wasn't an intentional like, hey, I want to get into VC. It was still, hey, I want to keep seeing new things every
0: day and uh, talking to really interesting people and you spent Manifold, obviously, you spent your time there in the Chicago office. Did you have a sense of kind of the broader ecosystem of venture capital? Had you Did you ever visit Silicon Valley and had you looked at any places in New York, which would be on the East Coast? Or did you really want to be in Chicago coming out of school and even till now?
1: Yeah, I explored a couple opportunities in New York. That's the classic place all of my friends went after school. But Chicago, I, I didn't have anything lined up Immediately after graduation or like before graduation, I didn't do any of the on-school recruiting. Baseball was definitely still front of mind but as late as senior spring. So I came back to Chicago and connected with the folks at Manifold that I had the, the fortune or I guess pleasure of interning with and figured out an opportunity there uh, and was like, you know what? I love Chicago. I'm a Chicago kid. Uh, let's spend a few years here seeing you know what the opportunities are. And it was all I could have ever hoped for.
0: Joe Dwyer was on one of our previous episodes and he kind of walked, I think everybody through the three arms of Manifold. But for you as a junior analyst starting out in venture capital, how did your experiences working with enterprises to help digital transformations, how did your experiences working at the venture studio, how did those all inform who you are today as a venture capitalist and how you think as an investor? A
1: lot of the enterprise work had the same amount of uncertainty as working with startups and in venture capital because a lot of the work was like building a company or investing in a new tech technology or new project. So it was unlike management consulting in in that sense, where it's more of like a defined project, you're going out to do specific research, et cetera. It was a lot of sort of trying to make ambiguity and turn it into something that was more understandable and digestible or something that was unknown and turn it into something that was just ambiguous rather than entirely unknown. But I would say working with clients, sort of like the human interaction piece of the client work was one of the most impactful things on my skills as a venture capitalist, learning how to talk to people that are much more experienced that want to do different things in terms of building new technologies or exploring a new idea. So really honing my, I guess, what, what would be called sort of public speaking skills was one of the most valuable pieces of the consulting.
0: right. Right. That makes total sense. I think it really sounds like that experience informed your skills as a VC and led to a lot of professional development for you early in your career. So you spent three years at Manifold and recently joined Motivate. I would love to talk about Motivate, the thesis behind the fund and why you decided to join the team. And we should also mention, Motivate did just raise a record-setting seed fund to the tune of, I think, $43 million. So it sounds like, Jackson, you and a ton of LPs are very bullish on the future at Motivate. Yeah, you nailed it.
1: I had gotten to know David and Lauren, the, the founding and managing partners at Motivate Ventures, over the last year or two in the Chicago venture scene. And we quickly became both friends and partners in, in the venture ecosystem, co-investing in deals, exploring ideas. As you mentioned, it was a record-setting fund, $43 million. And the decision to go there was, first and foremost, the opportunity to work with David and Lauren. They are awesome venture capitalists, have a great angel investing track ground, have deep experience as entrepreneurs, multi-times over. We had formed an awesome relationship. And when it came time for me to explore something new and sort of tackle a new challenge, they were one of the first people I talked to. So that was the main driver of my decision to go there. And then after having a month and a half now to reflect on the new role and the new fund, something I was really excited about and that has actually materialized is that the journey today at Motivate Ventures for me is as much an entrepreneurial endeavor as it is a venture capital one. This is the first fund we're still working and figuring out how to actually build a business. That just happens to be investing in other businesses. So figuring out things about like how to build a fund, what is the portfolio construction strategy? What does the reporting process look like? How do you work with the, the rest of the team? How do you actually build a company? And then next to that is, okay, how do I become a better venture investor? How do I see more deals? How do I connect with more uh, entrepreneurs? How do I figure out what my tangible skills are as a VC and build great relationships with founders? I guess to recap, it was one, the opportunity to work with David and Lauren and now Courtney and Trey, who are also on the team. And 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 also the chance to do much more than just invest in startups.
0: One comment I will make is David and Lauren are both Notre Dame guys. You went to Dartmouth. I have an athletic subscription, so if you need any articles about what's going on with Notre Dame football, so you're not lost at the water cooler in the fall, you can reach out to me. Okay? Yeah. No, I have plenty of Notre Dame exposure, and it's it's actually funny. It's sort of all coming full
1: circle. The manifold offices used to be, or I guess were, next door to like the Global Partnerships office for Notre Dame, so their office had as much Notre Dame memorabilia as you could ever think of. I think we went over there on. Patrick's Day and they had a special Guinness machine that would dispense Guinness and then it had a shamrock on the top. So I've had uh, plenty of Notre Dame exposure and, and anticipate I'll have much more over the next couple of years
0: three years, three and a half years into your venture capital career, what is the interview process like for somebody such as yourself where you're not fresh out of school, you have venture capital experience under your belt, but you're still sort of at the junior level? What does that experience look like for you?
1: I think it mirrors what it looks like when you're trying to make an investment from the perspective of, is this going to be a good partnership? Do you want to all work together for what hopefully is a very long time? We're talking seven to 15 years here and not one or two. So I think it first starts with, hey, is this somebody I want to work with? Is this a community that I want to be a part of? Are they building culture that I want to invest in and be a part of? And can I see myself not only being a part of that, but actually contributing to that over a very long time horizon. So that's one. And then as far as like tactically on the interview process, as a junior, you're still developing your skills. A lot that is still ambiguous and uncertain, much like you know startups are. Thinking about where I can add the most value. Do I have access to entrepreneurs and to venture firms that maybe they didn't before? Pretend you're breaking down a company for me. What are the things you look for? How do you evaluate a deal? Do you bring in a unique perspective? And then I think a lot of that or a lot of what I felt was interesting there was my experience writing a newsletter You know, it's not terribly uncommon these days for junior people to be pushing out content, but it was really more an outlet for me. I think it paid off not in that, hey, I had a newsletter with a couple hundred subscribers, but really it was practice fleshing out ideas, theses, analyzing things on a weekly basis across all of the different industries and technologies that we're looking at day to day. So that really helped, I think, in in the interview processes, hey, like I have experience over the last 54 weeks or whatever, breaking down companies, breaking down thought pieces, breaking down industry analyses in really short bite-sized ways. And I can articulate that hopefully have something unique to say. So that was honestly a lot of how the interviews were. It was like, Hey, what are you interested in? What's your take on this? Do you bring a unique perspective? And again, back to the, Hey, do you fit into this culture? Is this, are these people you want to work with for a long time?
0: Yeah, I love how you were able to integrate your Stealing Signs work into the interview process. All that work really paid off. I think what is really fantastic about Stealing Signs is the fact that typically it's very general in its focus. You cover a wide range of topics, and I think that probably stems from the fact that Manifold is a generalist fund and as is Motivate. So I actually wanted to ask... What are your thoughts on generalist funds? What are the pros and what are some of the drawbacks of investing as a generalist? Someone once told
1: me that a venture is ninety or whatever percent luck and being a specialist in an area increases your odds of being lucky significantly. I think that's certainly true though I think generalists can you know be as as lucky as the specialists. It's just in a different way. I'm really grateful and and happy that I stuck with a generalist approach. It wasn't necessarily intentional. But it definitely was the way to get the most coverage early on because I was starting from literally square one. I had no context, no experience with startups, no, no experience with investing. So really learning the ropes, not just in a specific industry or specific technology, I didn't have any experience that would you know make me a specialist in, in any one area anyway. But it, it gave me exposure to um, a broad set of industries, technologies, and allowed me to meet people from all walks of life and whether it's geography or industry or background. So that's really what I think is the most valuable thing early on as a generalist. So I've been at two generalist funds, but there are specific areas where based on the people at the firm, as they build a knowledge base and a network in specific areas that you lean towards some more than
0: others. Are there specific areas over the past couple of years that you've loved diving into? And then maybe other areas where you realize maybe I don't have the exact expertise necessary to really run due diligence on this company because of the vertical that it's in, because of the type of technology it deals with. How did you go about that and sort of your progression?
1: So at Motivate, though we're a generalist fund, I think we over-index on fintech. The David and Lauren have a a deep background and a lot of expertise in that area. They've invested in tons and tons of fintech companies. So a good chunk of our portfolio is in the fintech space. So I've spent a lot of time even pre-motivate digging into fintech. It's obviously a super hot area in in the venture world today, but financial technology and, and financial services itself is such a core part of basically everything you do on both online and offline. What we've seen with whether it's the verticalization of fintech, where you're building either banks or financial products for specific groups of people, more than just, hey, millennials, like there's a bank. I think it's called Daylight for the LGBTQ community. So really specifying the customer base you're building for is is something in fintech that I've been paying attention to. But outside of fintech, e-commerce is also a very hot space right now. There's a lot of opportunity there because COVID accelerated adoption quite significantly. So there are new things popping up every day, whether it's in returns, e-commerce enablement, there's a lot of stuff for small businesses. Those much like in the food space, which I can get to the small businesses were sort of left behind. The e-commerce giants dominated COVID. They took over over, you know they took back market share from what's called i guess the long tail we've looked at a lot of tools that are helping small businesses make the transition to e-commerce and do that in a cost-effective efficient way and helping them sort of compete with the the big players borrowing shopify's motto you know arming the rebels the food space is something i'm also extremely interested in i have a deep personal background in it but from an investment perspective still learning uh, about new models and new technologies that can be applied to the industry whether it's ghost kitchens or uh, software like bentobot and lunchbox that are helping small businesses. So definitely still learning. there. super interested in that, given my background on the some of the stuff that maybe I don't have as much experience with. I think direct to consumer brands and products is is something that I haven't spent a lot of time in. We haven't invested in a lot of those companies. And it's really heavy on sales and marketing, especially now when ad channels and ad networks are heavily saturated. It sort of feels like a race to the bottom as products become commoditized. That's a space I think is extremely competitive, really hard to differentiate on and something I just don't have a ton of experience in. So that's I. I'd say the number one thing that I tend to stay away from just because I don't have expertise or much experience in the key disciplines that are required in there, which is sales and marketing.
0: I'd love to, you mentioned a couple of different industries there, and I'd love to unpack a few of them that I think you and I have had some great experiences with analyzing potential investments at Manifold and just chatting about e-commerce in particular. You've written about e-commerce in some of your recent stealing sign issues. One of them, you analyze a piece written about Navarre's Ascension over the past decade by serving brands that are not quite the behemoth e-commerce aggregators, but also not SMBs per se. In your mind, as we enter 2021, you touch on this a bit, but where do you think the biggest opportunities lie in e-commerce SaaS investing?
1: I think an overarching theme I've been thinking a lot about is the personalization of e-commerce. So thinking about it from a consumer's perspective, better product recommendations, a more intimate experience with a specific brand or even a market, an e-commerce marketplace. I think a couple areas in which opportunities I think are still sit today still are SMB e-commerce enablement, helping the long tail of retailers compete against the large aggregators. There are millions and millions of small businesses. I think a vertical approach has worked and, and will continue to work well there. So whether we looked at a company that's doing it for furniture, or whether somebody wants to do it with cleaning products, or to pick any vertical, but I think I think a, a company that's done that, like the to take the vertical sort of thesis, Squire is sort of a SaaS management platform for barbershops. If you take that to e-commerce, right, let's take furniture for example, furniture retailers probably have a lot of the same needs at the end of the day maybe they aren't that different from cup manufacturers or bottled water whatever it is but there are specific needs enough to warrant something that is purpose built for that group so i think if you take the long tail of smbs figure out which verticals have the most acute pain points there's some opportunity there to help them either better list on e-commerce aggregators spin up their own direct connection with customers or sort of better manage their inventory across omni channel right across the e-commerce aggregators direct consumer, et cetera. Back to the personalization of e-commerce, something I've been thinking a lot about recently and have seen some interesting companies in this space is how do you enhance the customer experience such that it's both personal and virtually frictionless. One example is one-to-one video chat instead of a chatbot. Hey, I want to have an interaction just like we're having for 15 seconds or 30 seconds versus typing into a chatbot, waiting for a response, having to answer a bunch of different questions that are maybe unrelated. Like I just want an answer very quickly and I want it to feel natural and conversational. I think there's some opportunity there. Also on personalization of products. A lot of times this requires data that isn't just from the transaction data specifically. So the more data you can pull in from the more unique data sources, I think is really interesting because the last thing I want to do is go on and have a really hard time finding what I want. I still think it's hard to find what you want on Amazon, for example, even on sites that, okay, hey, I'm not just selling one product, but maybe I have 15 different products and a bunch of different iterations of those. I want the ones that are perfect for me to be surfaced right away. I'm okay sharing some data and some information to get there, which I think is a big hurdle that does need to be sort of overcome and hasn't really yet. But so the personalization of the customer experience on e commerce, I think, I, th- I do think there is a lot of opportunity there.
0: You've talked a lot about vertical specific approaches for some of these e commerce enablement businesses. Do you think it's important to have a founder who has a deep domain expertise? Because as you talked about, understanding these pain points thoroughly and creating your product and iterating your product to try and solve those pain points to me seems like the more viable route versus a horizontal approach where you're trying to sort of plug into many different verticals. You might might not be addressing the specific needs, you might face a lot of churn when you know specific verticals realize this just doesn't this doesn't fit. This product is not really made for me. Do you like to see a founder in that situation who has deep domain expertise? Is it a must have? Is it a nice to have? How do you think about that?
1: I think there are shades of it, but I, I think it's a must have. I think domain expertise is obviously super valuable when you're thinking about okay, I'm putting myself in the customer's shoes. It's really hard to do that if you haven't been a customer yourself, and in this case, not the end customer, but the customer of your software. We looked at one company and the founder had actually started a business in the area he was building for. So he was a customer of the software he then built for like two years. That's extremely valuable. You can do all the customer interviews in the world, but there are things that you just can't uncover in those that you can being a customer, being a user of that potential piece of software. So we absolutely look for domain expertise. It doesn't need to be as deep as that example, but showing an understanding of both your customer's pain point and then their end customer's pain point,
0: experience, needs, wants, et cetera, is super important. No, I think that makes total sense, but I wanted to jump back real quick to a point you previously made. You mentioned personalization of the e-commerce experience, but how do you think about scale and scaling that type of personalization? Chatbots are clunky and there are so many issues with them, but they're scalable and utilize artificial intelligence. And and that's a tech that you can sort of implement and scale pretty quickly. I love your idea about the personalization aspect, but how do you weigh the scaling component? I think if you're building
1: software in in e-commerce, the market is so big and and there is such a long tail that obviously reaching a large number of customers and servicing them efficiently is critical. It's And if you don't, you're not going to be around for a long time. One thing we've, we've seen as of late is SMS marketing. It's a very busy space. There are a lot of interesting companies doing SMS marketing, but that is something that's ultra scalable, right? If you can touch everybody on their phone, everybody, quote, everybody has a phone these days.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a great point. Moving on from e-commerce to an area that you've kind of written extensively about, and I know it really excites you, marketplace, B2B marketplaces specifically. We'd love to hear about your history with that. What got you excited about it in the first place? And what still excites you to this day about B2B marketplace businesses?
1: I think the concept of introducing liquidity into a market that hasn't had it is really exciting because you can see effects of that. The success can happen really quickly. It's sort of the whole network effects flywheel concept. But when you introduce a, if you take a transaction that has historically been really opaque, there's this whole theory in the B2B marketplace space is do you start with a transaction that has historically been offline or do you start with something that is online but a pretty poor experience? I think there are fair arguments on both sides, but if you take one that has been offline, for example, that transaction is likely very opaque, especially at the enterprise level when you're dealing with two different businesses. There are multiple levels of management that are likely involved. There are different teams potentially in different offices and different geographies, often in different departments, whether it's accounting, vendor management, the finance department. So there's a lot of complexity. Data is often siloed. Information, So I guess data and information is often siloed. Different pieces of the transaction are siloed. So it's like the finance department deals with the transaction. The vendor management deals with the relationship with said other party. So when you unify that and create one system of record for not only the transaction, but all of the data involved in that transaction and the relationship between each business, you can arrive at something really powerful and that can fundamentally change the way in which businesses interact with each. Each other. The other piece of B2B marketplaces that excite me that is related there is the SaaS enabled component. You have a marketplace, you have a business on one side, another business on another side, you create a place for them to transact. As we talked about, there's a lot of other data involved in that transaction. There's data before the transaction and there's data after the transaction, and there's data that multiple parties need access to and need to track. The SaaS component there creates an even more sticky product than the the marketplace, which facilitates the transaction because it gives those the buyer and the seller one place to not only transact, but to track all of the data that's involved with that, to track historical performance or to keep tabs. If you know a, a common B2B marketplaces these days are in like parts. So whether it's like airplane parts or tractor parts or construction parts, right? Those parts aren't just sitting in a vacuum. They're they go on, you know, an airplane or they go on a tractor. Companies that are buying tractor parts probably have more than one tractor or they have more than one plane. So doing something like fleet management or understanding how parts decay over time and doing some predictive stuff around, okay, hey, you're going to probably need to buy parts for these number of your tractors in X amount of years. A pure marketplace doesn't have that. But when you tack on the SaaS piece, it just expands the scope of the areas of your customers' businesses that you are a part of and that you have access to. Once those businesses start using it, it's really hard to stop using
0: it. What's really exciting too, is it really touches every area, every corner of the economy, every vertical you could think of. And it's crazy to think that consumer marketplaces really started getting modernized and digitized and brought online 20 years ago. And these B2B marketplaces are really in the early innings. What are your thoughts as to why that is? Do you think B2B transactions just weren't broken? They were maybe clunky. And again, all the issues you mention are true, but they weren't fundamentally broken. And so for the longest time, there wasn't sort of the need to fix them. It, what's really caused, you think, this proliferation of B2B marketplace businesses that we've seen in the last decade or so?
1: I think in, in hindsight, and in looking with all the context we have now with mostly technology and the way it's changed B2B transactions, I think many would argue that they were broken. People just didn't think they were, based on what we have now. I think historically, a lot of B2B transactions have been intentionally broken or intentionally opaque. A lot of it is, it's a relationship-driven transaction, often. It's a business that has a relationship with another business for a long time. There are probably deals cut and volume discounts, for example, or, hey, you get preferential treatment because we grew up together. We've been doing business for 20, 30 years. When you introduce technology and specifically marketplace technology, the playing field is, is leveled, right? There's visibility across the transaction, across sort of the supply chain there. So I think we've seen the proliferation of, of that model as of late because one, enterprises are more willing to adopt new technology. Like that's that's number one. Right, as they, they really don't have much of a choice these days if they want to compete with the, the upstarts, direct-to-consumer offerings, et cetera. I also think that businesses have realized that they can create better economics and, and be more efficient using technology and using marketplaces like this. They are not they don't have to use four different systems to track a transaction and have all of these different meetings to loop in people, keep them up to date on what's happening. They can actually just have one system of record to track the finance, track the parts, track the supplier relationship, etc. all in one place. That introduces tons of efficiency. It encourages communication across different business units, um, different teams. And that, I think the liquidity piece of the marketplace is also uh, an important factor there because the more liquidity creates a more efficient market. The businesses are realizing that they can capitalize on that and they don't have to rely on historical relationships and just sort of take the deal they're given or try to negotiate for a point here, or a point there. They can just go to a liquid marketplace and see what the market is determining as
0: quote market rate. Maybe this is a little simplistic way of looking at it. The Businesses are made up of people who are transacting every single day online, essentially, at this point, and they're seeing how easy it is. And the fact that their particular industries hadn't caught up, I think ultimately over time is what led to this sort of sea change that we're seeing. I think, are there any industries that you're looking at or that you think are ripe for a B2B marketplace?
1: One that strikes me and and that I mentioned is manufacturing, whether it's People that are buying parts or people that are selling parts. I think we talked about Airplane One. I think there's a startup that raised some for an airplane parts marketplace. But I I, I think so stepping back that's non vertical specific is sort of looking at the nature of the transaction. We talked earlier about transactions that have historically been offline. So when you think about those transactions, that can be in anything from it could be software, it could be equipment and hardware, it could be people, right? Like, hey, we need to hire a contractor, or hey, we need to hire a design team or a design firm. Anything that has historically, somebody has picked up a phone or somebody has clicked a button in an ERP or a vendor management solution and say, hey, this needs to happen. If there's one place they can go and actually make that transaction happen instead of doing 10 steps to get there or having a largely in-person conversation with opaque terms, opaque communication channels, et cetera, that is, I think, where the biggest opportunity for B2B marketplaces is the transactions that have historically been offline. I think the some of the theory around that is those are the hardest transactions to then bring online. If you can start with a transaction that is online today, but maybe it isn't a marketplace, or maybe it isn't an efficient market, or, or prices are are still not suboptimal, that's a bit of an easier lift because you don't have to do all of the work of bringing it online. But
0: both the hardest and the
1: biggest opportunity, I think, is still in those offline transactions.
0: I mean, we could really do a deep dive on this topic. There's so much there that is fascinating. But I wanted to switch gears because I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on the restaurant industry while we have our time together. I know that food tech is something that both you and I are very interested in. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think online meal delivery is headed in 2021 and beyond.
1: So much like e-commerce, COVID helped accelerate business for the large players, the DoorDash, the Uber Eats of the world. I think it's pretty obvious that online food delivery and meal delivery isn't going anywhere. Maybe demand will dip a little bit when people can go back to restaurants. But I think it's a trend that and and sort of a behavior that's certainly here to stay. Thinking about what the future of online food delivery looks like, there's a wave of startups that are trying to help restaurants move off of these platforms and take delivery in-house, do marketing themselves and not rely on the big aggregators to do all of that for them because it's just such a bad deal usually for these small restaurants, right? They take a, Grubhub takes like a 30% cut, Uber Eats and DoorDash take similar cuts. They do a lot of the work for you, but they're making you pay a lot for that. And it's not just new customers, they're making you pay that 30% cut on every transaction from whether it's a new customer or a repeat customer. And I think the vast majority of online food delivery customers are repeat customers. So that's a hefty price to pay. I still think that the online, the large aggregators have a firm place in this ecosystem, because thinking about the difference between sort of behavior and and essentially the job to be done for dining in and food delivery, I think is fundamentally different. So when you look at online food delivery, the quote job to be done is convenient, like something that's going to taste good and convenience. That is what the consumer is looking for. They're often not looking for, hey, I want this specific restaurant. So I'm going to go to this specific platform and type in this restaurant name. They're looking for something that looks good, is at a good price, and they can just one click and is within 30 minutes. That is fundamentally different than, I'm going to go out to a restaurant. There's going to be a great atmosphere. Maybe I can sit outside, have a couple of drinks, have a good conversation with friends, go to the bar and check out what's going on there, have sort of this experience. And that's very intentional where I think food delivery is more, hey, I want something that's quick, convenient, and and tastes good. So the big marketplaces do that really well. The smaller marketplaces and the restaurants that choose to take that in-house, I think, I think will struggle, though it's a better deal and some will do really well. I think the bigger picture has these big aggregators as a large part just because of the way humans interact with food delivery and what they're looking for when they go online to order food. I think
0: we could do an entire podcast about this specific topic, but I think the comments you made about what consumers are really looking for out of their online delivery experience, that's why I think ghost kitchens have such a fascinating opportunity ahead of them. The ability for a brand to just turn itself on and all you need to do is deliver quality, hot, packaged food in a timely way, and that's the experience that we're craving. I do think there's been or a lot of think pieces out there about reinventing the wheel of online delivery and bringing the experience to the consumer at home. And to me, that doesn't really seem like the number one change that's going to ar- come from COVID. It's more so going to be about th- the real acceleration in the qualities of food delivery.
1: And, and that's tough because it, it's still a bad deal for the restaurants. They're still paying a ton to be on the platform. and right as these platforms stay on for longer, the the, the platforms are doing less and less. Like Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, they don't care if a restaurant churns because there's always going to be another one to fill the spot. So that's a really bad place for the restaurants to be because they're paying a lot for something that DoorDash and Uber Eats, they have no incentive to keep one restaurant on versus another because there's always going to be one to fill the space. So it's a bad deal for restaurants, but it's really good for the large players. At the end of the day, I think you're right about ghost kitchens and why you've seen a lot of the ghost kitchens spin up new brands once a week because that has just a good a chance of being selected by any one consumer as the local Italian restaurant down the street like a, a random ghost kitchen brand has the same ability to be present, to offer a deal and to deliver something in a timely manner. And I think the vast majority of decisions made in online delivery is that the intention is not to order from a specific place. It's really, I think, at its deepest, the intention to order a specific cuisine. And after that, I think it's just convenience, price and food and delivery time.
0: I think you're completely right. And what's really interesting to me on the topic of food delivery, so much of the food delivery, you know, food tech transformation started right here in chicago obviously as grubhub was founded here i think the chicago ecosystem has undergone a lot of changes since 2004 since the founding of grubhub and i would just love to hear your perspective on the ecosystem here you know we touched on this a little bit but i'm sure you could have had opportunities to move out to san francisco what's kept you in this ecosystem and what excites you about the chicago venture capital and startup scene right now
1: well, I have to give my Homer Chicago take. I, I wouldn't be able to go to Wrigley Field often if I lived in the valley and I wouldn't have the benefit of experiencing the great Chicago summers if if I was elsewhere. So that's one. Only half joking there. But I think the Chicago ecosystem has has a long way to go. It's certainly improved in terms of venture capital dollars and, and startups being founded here even since I've started, but certainly over the last decade. And the biggest issue I think local VCs and entrepreneurs and, and people in the tech world are grappling with is the lack of early stage capital. So you'll often here, there isn't enough risk capital here, which just means that there isn't enough capital at the really, really stages, whether that's pre-seed or seed, funding entrepreneurs, maybe even before they have a company, often before they have much traction to speak of. That's the number one problem I think you'll hear around Chicago. It's sort of a chicken and the egg problem, right? Is there too little capital or are there too little companies being or are there too few companies being started it's chicken and egg for a reason it's hard to figure out what precedes the other and i think it's i think it's a mix of both there's plenty of money in chicago i think when you're looking at it from a vc and tech perspective you'd say it's misallocated there's not enough of that of those dollars going to young, hungry entrepreneurs. I guess they don't have to be young, just hungry entrepreneurs trying to start something new. And they're right, there isn't. A lot of the dollars are are locked up. A lot of the dollars sit with people that made their money on legacy industries and have uh, a low risk tolerance. So they just won't invest much or anything in early stage companies. When you look at it from the company perspective, I certainly think we need more people starting businesses here. I I, I doubt we'll ever reach New York level or San Francisco level, certainly, but I think there needs to be a a higher risk tolerance, both from the founder perspective and the venture capital, venture capitalist perspective. The more opportunities are, the more venture dollars that can flow into those and, and vice versa. So it is a chicken and the egg problem. I think we could certainly benefit. And I certainly hope to see both more companies started in Chicago and more venture dollars at the early stages.
0: Do you think there's a lack of, you could call it unicorn chasing, but looking for those 100x returning companies, startups at the earliest of stages. Is there a lack of that in Chicago? And, and if you think there is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And do you think that'll change in the future?
1: If you talk to any entrepreneur that's tried to raise money in Chicago, they'll almost certainly tell you that the venture capitalists had too high expectations for what the company should look like, and, and specifically the traction a company should have at you know the pre-seed or seed stage. And I think some of that is rooted in the, the legacy mentality based on where the dollars are coming from here. You make your money in, in trading or in insurance or healthcare. Again, those are lower risk industries and they made their money doing things that were not terribly risky, or at least not as risky as starting an early stage company. So it's a bit of a mindset mindset. That I think historically Chicago VCs have looked for too much traction or waited too long and hadn't funded those companies really early on. Whether it's more practical or a more responsible approach, I don't know because San Francisco has certainly done well funding moonshot ideas. But I think it's higher than that. It's just a it's just a cultural thing. Like we need more conversations, we need more interactions about starting a company. We need more people just to be talking about that. Like that's step one before you start a company. We have to encourage more interest in starting companies or more interest in learning about how to start a company or what it means to be an entrepreneur or what it means to work in tech. Historically, that's, I think, been the biggest criticism and something that's changing every day. But we certainly have a long way to go, in my opinion.
0: I'm curious on your thoughts on the community. Do you think Chicago has a strong startup community and venture capital community here? Would you categorize it as strong? I know that's really important for any ecosystem to have a robust startup community, along with venture capitalists looking to invest in that community. And you've been around for about three and a half years. How has that community progressed over the years?
1: Uh, well, Motivate is a is sort of a, a new flat or sort of feather in the cap, big new early stage fund with the high risk tolerance. So hopefully we can do our part to help. When you look at other ecosystems, specifically, we'll, we'll take San Francisco. There's a plethora of junior VCs. That just isn't the case in Chicago. There are you know, a handful of firms, and, and maybe that's understating it. There are, let's call it 20 to 40 firms in Chicago, however you want to slice it. But a lot of those firms tend to be pretty senior. So I think something that I would love to see is more junior VCs because the community, like we the junior VCs are the ones that have time to do the networking events and go out and, and talk and, and sort of be involved in the ecosystem, encourage people to start companies, help people learn about that, about technology and, and venture capital. So, so that's one thing. It's sort of a structural problem, though, like you need more VC, you need more firms, you need more capital, etc. So it's not something like, hey, we can just plop in a bunch of junior VCs here. But that's one of the personal ones. I would just like to have more people that are doing what I'm doing in the ecosystem to create a more robust community. As far as the entrepreneurial ecosystem, I think we have a, a pretty robust one. There are entrepreneurs, there are certainly plenty of entrepreneurs starting companies. There is no cap to that, though. There literally cannot be enough. And absolutely, the more, the better. It's If you think about the nodes in a network, the more nodes you can have, the more chances those have to connect, I and mean, the more chances something will materialize from that. It, it might not sound too sophisticated, but the more, the better. Right now, there's it's a solid ecosystem, but it absolutely can grow. And if it does grow, good things will
0: happen. Jackson, this has been amazing. Before I let you off, though, I would love to get some of your takes on the Chicago food scene you have the background on the restaurant industry. You've mentioned that multiple times in this podcast. So got to hear some of your favorite recommendations for where to get food in Chicago. Oh,
1: yeah, there are, there are plenty uh, to choose from. I'll rattle off a couple that come to mind. SKY is down in Pilsen. It's across the street from an awesome music venue called Talia Hall. It's sort of like a Asian American modern cuisine, but what really strikes me, the food is, is excellent. You go there for the meal. It's awesome. But the ambiance and the atmosphere there, it's like this cool, gray, really relaxed sort of dining room. And then at the very back, it's this open kitchen and everything in the kitchen is brass. And it sort of looks like something pops. It's like a, an oasis or pops out of the desert. And it's this like sparkling kitchen that has such a is such a stark contrast from the dining room. So that's what I remember most about it. I love the food, the the atmosphere, the experience there is awesome. I have to mention La Pasarita, which I've been going to with my dad and In my family for ever since i can remember 20 22 plus years best tacos in town that's all i have to say the best tacos we have in chicago are at division in ashland it's a tiny yellow building i guess i love burgers i think the best burger in chicago is the loyalist it's over in Fulton market that's the hottest i think restaurant area in chicago the bristol is is in wicker park bucktown where i live and i think that is the second best burger and i will vouch for the duck fat fries are they're so good i can never never get enough fries and then there are a couple other local spots here club lucky's classic italian best martinis in chicago taxum is a great greek food spot which i don't eat often but when you go it's like wow i, I need to come here more often they have a rooftop which is in summers is Almost impossible to beat. Uh, and then a couple of great breakfast spots over by where I'm at too. Are Mindy's Hot Chocolate, which I've also been going to with my parents forever. And then Westtown Bakery, which is over on Chicago. They do awesome cakes and I don't eat cake often, but when I do, that's my <laughs> like new spot to eat cake. And they have breakfast sandwiches that are like, they're based, they're a full meal. Like you don't need to eat for the rest of the day, but I could eat breakfast sandwiches for every meal. So I have to <laughs> uh, have to give them a shout
0: out. Cake, duck fat fries, breakfast <laughs> sandwiches, Jackson. Good God. Yeah, I'm I'm in the gym a lot. Otherwise, I uh, keep up those habits. (laughs) This has been awesome, Jackson. I really appreciate you coming on. We're going to have to get you back on the show next quarter at the very earliest. We can talk all things food tech. Sounds like we could talk for hours about the Chicago restaurant scene. But Jackson, really appreciate you coming on Chicago Capital. Can't wait to have you on again. Thanks so much, Matt. This is a blast. And where can people find you, Jackson? If they want to find Stealing Signs, if they want to subscribe, where's the best place to find you? Twitter at Bubjax
1: and then StealingSigns.subsec.com.
0: That's where those are the two places I spend the most time. Awesome. And we will put a link to Stealing Signs in the show notes. And uh, thanks again, Jackson. You have an awesome day. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group and please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.